Charles and the worship team. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Jonah. Uh, welcome, everybody. So glad that you have chosen uh, to worship with us. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers um, in the room. Woo-woo. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna to do a better job celebrating you after the message. Um, I say that, and you may go, man, he doesn't really care about I mean, Mother's Day. He's not even talking about it. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that, okay? Uh, Jonah, uh, Jonah um, chapter 1. Um, last week, Pastor Andy continued us in our series, and this is week three. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we're in a Jonah series and just un- taking this story that many of us have heard for uh, large portions of our life if we've grown up in church or around church in any capacity. But even if you didn't grow up in church, this is probably one of those stories that you may have heard people talk about or may have seen a, a movie or a cartoon made of it of some sort, and, and so you're kind of familiar. Or maybe you've heard the story of Jonah just from the uh, standpoint that people, when they talk about Scripture and they talk about how it you know, has fairy tales in it, they'll go, oh yeah, remember this one story? There's this guy who was swallowed by fish. See, the Bible, it can't be truth. It talks about fairy tales, and you know, and that's a common thing that is heard, but we talked about two weeks ago as we came to this story, and I just want to expound on it again, is that we do believe this is a factual story. That we as Christians who hold God's Word to a high authority in our lives, meaning that we trust God's Word uh, to guide us, and we believe that God's Word is His revelation to us. We can't know God without Him revealing Himself, and we believe He's done that through the Bible, but more specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to the Bible, we trust the Bible, and we believe it, and we actually believe, um, and I I say that apologetically, not an apology like, I'm sorry, but apologetic in defense, and it's sad that I have to do that, but in our culture today, we don't believe, our culture doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe in these things, but for we, but we do actually believe this was historical fact, and even if it may be hard to, for us to believe that it was difficult put in perspective of the truth that we believe that God created everything, that he spoke things from nothing into something. The fact that we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, the fact that we believe that Jesus died and was resurrected, um, all of those things we believe. And if we can believe that, then we can believe this, that it's not a far, far stretch for us to believe that. And so what I want to do tonight is we're going to finish out chapter one, and I love the ending of chapter one. I, I think I think Jonah, uh, like many of many passages in the Old Testament, I believe really all passages in the Old Testament, but specifically certain ones, Jonah being one of these certain ones, pretty clearly points to Jesus. It makes it so obvious and so evident. Knowing now what we know about the New Testament, we can see Christ all over this. And we see this in chapter 1, and we'll unpack that together. And so if you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through And then we'll slow down in verse 11, which is the beginning of our text specifically for tonight. If you're with me tonight, just say amen. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one in the seat back in front of you or look on with your neighbor or grab a phone, whatever it takes. We're reading from the English Standard Version, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We know, Paul's, we know Jonah is a real prophet. We see that from 2 Kings. We believe that this is the case. And um, he's a real prophet, and God gives him a command, and we see that he is disobedient to the command. And we really looked at first, in the first week, the importance of this passage is teaching us to be obedient to God. Sometimes God is going to ask us to do difficult things, but it's always better to be obedient. And God is sovereign over all those details. But uh, Jonah runs away. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Um, Paul's, they were polytheistic, and they were considered pagan, the sailors, meaning they didn't worship the God of Jonah. They worship all these other gods. And so when the sea and the storm came, they began to cry out to their gods. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Basically, hey, why are you sleeping? Like, what do you mean by this? Why are you sleeping? There's a storm and we could potentially die. Why are you sleeping? Pastor Andy did a great job unpacking that idea that it, is in, that it was in his rebellion and in his sin, that in his emotional um, depression, even if you will, because of what was going on in his life, he just slept his worries away. And this was kind of what happened. And he, but the captain says to him, Arise and call out to your God. I want you to begin to notice there's this constant theme of command of rising, calling to action, get up and do something. Second like time we've seen this already. Arise call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Maybe, here's, here's what the pagan says, our gods, we're crying out to them, this ain't working. But maybe if you pray, your God will have a thought to us, meaning that he'll, he'll care about us. He'll care about us. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us of whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Pause once again. We, we see, as we begin to pick up our text in verse 11, we see this reality that he, um, once again, Pastor Andy said this so great last week, the fact that he begins his answer in a different order than the question, and the fact that he answered his nationality above who he worshipped, gives a sign that in Jonah, his nationality was more important than his God. And, and this is a huge theme of the story, because why? We understand, if we understand Jonah and Nineveh, we understand that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the enemy. Nineveh was the enemy. And if Jonah goes and preaches repentance to Nineveh, and they repent, and God shows grace to Nineveh, then that means God's not going to destroy Nineveh. And if God doesn't destroy Nineveh, but he blesses Nineveh, and Nineveh is the enemy of the Israelites, then their blessings means Jonah's destruction. And so it's one of these moments, it's like, 
kind of kill or be killed kind of moment for Jonah. Seriously, if you've heard that phrase, you understand what I mean? Like, hey, one of us has got it. Like, we're not friends. For you to be blessed means that's not good news for me. And so Jonah's like, I'm not preaching repentance to them because if God shows grace to them, then that means we will be destroyed. And so he, what? Chose his nationality over obedience to God. I, I want to I just kind of add a, a statement here, and I just want to put it in perspective. I want us to get something. Later on in the summer, I say later on in the summer, uh, towards the end of June, I believe June 30th, that last Sunday, we're going to begin a series walking through First Peter together. We're going to spend two months walking through First Peter together. As of now, don't hold that against me. I could change plans. But as of now, that's the plan. And we see a beautiful picture in First Peter where Peter is writing to the church and he's explaining that you are exiles on this side of eternity. That this is not your home. Ultimately, this is not your home. That, that your definition of your home, whether you live here or there, all these things, ultimately you are exiles. And therefore, your earthly home is second to your heavenly home. That the things of God come first over the things here on earth. There's a priority that is set specifically in the kingdom of God in whatever empire you live on here on earth. I say that to say this. Jonah got these things switched, and it caused great problems to his obedience and honor to God. Now hear me. In our culture today, it's easy for us as Christians to place politics, to place our opinion on certain aspects of politics, and to place our individual countries over the kingdom of God. Now, we should be engaged in politics. We should be engaged in those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but let me be clear that our loyalty is to the kingdom of God and to the word of God over those things. Now, how does this play out and apply? Because as a pastor in our culture today, and as Christians in our culture today, we should be able to set an example of how we can be unified because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, despite whether we agree on politics within this room or not. Because our culture outside that room cannot they politics and nationality and some of these issues which are big issues and i'm not saying we shouldn't care about them but what i am saying is that we should set an example of how to have a healthy conversation that our culture is unable to have today but it's hard for us to do that when we prioritize our nation or anything or any particular political view over the kingdom of god now, it doesn't matter what your political view is on a specific topic. I'm just helping you and challenging us that let's prioritize in our conversation and let us, and I love, it's one of the things I love about this church is when I do have political conversations is this church is extremely diverse on their opinions on what's going on in our politics today. But I love that we, because of Christ, can have healthy conversations about those things, can disagree on those things, and can still break bread together and worship. Why? Because ultimately, we're not jumping into one of the sins of Jonah, which Jonah placed his nationality over obedience to the kingdom of God. Does this just make sense? I'm not saying we all got to have the same opinions, but what I am saying is, if we are not careful in our hearts and we place empire over kingdom, empire, our earthly empire, over the heavenly kingdom, it's hard for us to love one another in the way that God's called us to do. So I'm just challenging that we have healthy perspectives on this. Does this make sense? And do we see how Jonah didn't do that? And how he, the fact that he said, I'm a Hebrew first, and the fact that he is running away was because he was willing to be disobedient to God in order for his nation to prosper. 
And ultimately, we're not called because of First Peter. We're ultimately exiles in whatever earthly nation we're a part of, but we're part of the kingdom of God. And therefore, we should be united as brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what. Does this make sense? I sure hope so. So this is precisely what's happened. And now, I love what happens. Jonah, because he doesn't want to go to Gentiles, pagans, and I'm using that language because it's a language used often in the Old Testament, he doesn't want to go to pagans and preach the gospel, so he gets on a boat full of pagans where God is going about to use Jonah to show God's power to a bunch of pagans. I mean, like, I, I want to see the beauty of God's sovereignty in this, that he's going to, even when Jonah's rebellion, he's going to use Jonah in a powerful way. And so they are crying out to their gods, and it isn't working. So they go to the sleeper, and they say, hey, wake up. I, we need help. And they find out he's actually the problem. They find out that actually God is bringing judgment on Jonah, therefore it's affecting them, and they begin to ask questions. Verse 11, now we get to our text for tonight. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? What do we do? Hey, Jonah, you're the one that's causing all this. You're the prophet of God. What do we do? What do we do to, to, to stop us from uh, this judgment? And he said to them, Verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more te uh, tempestuous, tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I want to go back to verse 11 and begin to walk through it. What shall we do for us that the sea may quiet down? And he answers them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now, commentators on this verse are divided, and honestly, I, I don't know so what this means. So let me kind of give two thoughts. What I mean is when Jonah says, hey, pick me up and throw me in the sea, is it either he's repenting and going, hey, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make things right, throw me in the sea, or is it a continuous act of rebellion where he's like, look, I'm trying to run from God, and if that even means death, I'll take death. Now, commentators are divided, and to be honest, I don't know which it is. But it is, it does give us a glimpse for the first time we see Jonah begin to care about the other sailors. Want to see this? When before, he was doing everything he can not to care about pagans. He, he ran away from Nineveh, even on the boat with sailors who were not Israelites, he went down and slept and didn't care about what was going on up above. He is showing no concern for the people who are not a part of the people of God. He was showing no concern. But this is the first time he begins to give an answer. And I believe, it, whether it's an act of repentance or not, I, I do think it was an act of care for the other sailors. I do think Jonah, in this moment, is beginning to care for them. And he says, hey, you know what? It's just best for you if you just throw me overboard We'll end this. But I want to see what, what, what do they do. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry 
lands. The Hebrew phrase means they dug in. You may have a footnote in your Bible that says that if you have footnotes, but it says that, that the literal language is that they dug in, meaning they just, they just begin to row harder. I want us to see something that is extremely convicting for me in this passage. You've got Jonah who knows Yahweh, the one true and living God of, what, of the God of Christianity, Judaism and Christianity, that the one true living God, he knows him, and he's a prophet for this great God. When God calls him to care for other people, Jonah goes, no, I'm okay with that. In fact, I don't want to do that. I'm going to be disobedient, and I'm going to run away. He shows a lack of care for other people. Even when he's on the boat, he doesn't care for the sailors. But in the moment when the sailors realize that in order to save their lives, they're going to have to sacrifice his life, they don't do it. Do you see how in this moment that people who don't know God show better mercy than someone who actually knows God? This is a challenge. And I say it's a challenge because sometimes I look around the world around us and I look at people who don't worship Jesus, love people better than I who do worship Jesus. Can we just have an honest moment as a church together that we're not perfect? The fact that we worship Jesus doesn't make us perfect. That, that we worship Jesus because we recognize that our, we're actually extremely sinful. And that we understand that scripture says that we're totally depraved, meaning that we can't worship God and we can't make our way back to God, which is why we need Jesus which is why we worship Jesus. We as Christians recognize that we are not better than anyone else. In fact, we actually recognize of how great our sin is. And we also recognize that Scripture teaches that all people, whether they're worshipers of Jesus or not, are made in the image of God, that they bear God's image and we are to love. And because of his uh, what theological term, which is called common grace, a grace that he just gives goodness and mercy to people, not saving grace, but this grace that he gives to people and all around that oftentimes people outside of the church do a better job loving people than those with inside the church. And this is what we see happening in Jonah. This is a rebuke, not just to Jonah, but to the entire Israelite people because they, in knowing God, were selfish with that knowledge and were unwilling to lay down their lives so that other people who didn't know God would know God. And in a moment, we see people who did not worship Yahweh actually showed more care for Jonah than Jonah did for them. Jonah said, hey, if you want to save your life, all you have to do is throw me overboard. And they wouldn't do it. At least not at first. They're like, there's got to be another way. And we will do everything we can to try to save your life and to save our life. So it says they dug in and they rode harder. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, and they prayed unto God and said this, O Yahweh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They recognized that ultimately God was calling them to throw him overboard. They came to the conclusion, it is not us who are going to kill him, but it's clear, God, that you want this to happen. He's a prophet, and he, so what he's saying is of you, and so we're going to trust him. So, But they ask for forgiveness. They care about him and want to be innocent of him. So they what? They throw him overboard. Verse 15, so he picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased 
from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Once again, I love the beautiful picture that God was calling Jonah to go to pagans to preach the gospel so that they would repent and turn to God. He said no, and through his judgment, we see pagans come and worship God. I want us to see, I want us to, as we begin to make application, I want us to see this first application truth, that God is sovereign for his glory, and that he, no matter what, is going to make sure his creation worships him that he is going to advance his kingdom, that he is sovereign over all things, and he, above all, is will, because he deserves it, will get his glory. Scripture even says that if you and I don't give him glory, the rocks will cry out. His creation will give him glory. And God, through either our obedience or through our judgment, is going to get glory with our lives. Scripture tells us that one day when Christ, the day of judgment comes and God brings all things kind of to an end to this moment of judgment. It says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Scripture says that everyone under the earth, on the earth, and above the earth, this picture of going in all places, people of all places, will bow and worship him. You will glorify God with your life. But the question is, will you glorify him on this side of eternity in salvation, or will you glorify him on the other side of eternity in judgment? Either in obedience, worship to him, or in judgment, you will glorify God with your life. So scripture teaches. And Jonah, in his disobedience and his running from God, God brought judgment on him. And in that judgment on him, he eventually will show him great grace, which we'll see as we continue to read Jonah. But also in that judgment, he brought worship unto his name. The sailors worshipped Yahweh. The story begins with, at least where the sailor in the storm is concerned, the story begins with the sailors calling out to their little G-gods, the god of the sea, whatever mythology they were crying out to. It doesn't tell us, but they were crying out to their gods, and nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. But when they saw that God miraculously moved in the details, they could not deny that he was Yahweh. And scripture says they cry out to him as Yahweh. They worship him. We see in verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Next week, we're going to continue into that passage on through chapter 2 as Param unpacks this for us. And so I'm not going to go into the belly of the fish tonight much other than to just recognize the ending of the storm or this part of the storm. Now, I want us to see how does this give us a picture of Christ? When we think about Christ, for those who may not be overly familiar with the gospel story, let me just kind of give a short summary of it. Is that Jesus is a person that we believe was virgin born, and we see this in, in the Gospels, is virgin born. Matthew 1 specifically uh, claims this. He's virgin born. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. Why was that important? He died, Scripture says, to, to carry our sin and judgment. The judgment you and I deserve for our sin, for our rebellion against God, Christ bore that for us, died, and was resurrected to life. He was in the grave three days and was resurrected to life. And we worship and we gather believing that this true event that I just said about Jesus 
It was a, Jesus was a sacrifice and a payment for our sins that Scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, God is righteous and holy. We are sinful. So we deserve wrath. He deserves uh, worship and glory. But Christ took on our sin and bore our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. And that in salvation, that we are clothed with his righteousness. This is what we believe. Now, we also believe this. If you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can get the idea, the false idea, let me be clear, that the Old Testament is God's plan A for salvation. And when that doesn't work out, then he sends his son in the New Testament, and that's God's plan B for salvation. But I want us to be clear, is that Old Testament is not plan A, and New Testament is not plan B, but we see Jesus' plan A from the very beginning. And all throughout the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And I want us to see the picture of Jonah. The All of Jonah is a beautiful picture of Jesus. But I want us to see in this passage, I want to walk through it, and if I can, I want to try to tie back language to what we see in the New Testament as we think about Christ. Look with me in verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you so that the sea may be quiet down for us? They're asking this question. What must we do to be saved? One of the most common questions in the New Testament. This is the most common question that should be in your life if you don't know Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Recognizing that you are because of sin. All of us are. And lovingly I say this. Jesus says that in John chapter 3.16 that he is the life. And then he goes on to say that I have not come into this world to condemn this world. He doesn't bring judgment because this world is condemned already. Meaning we're already under judgment. Christ didn't come to judge us. We're already under judgment because of sin. So Christ actually came to save us from that. And so the question that needs to be asked for us, for those as we recognize that we are already in judgment and in condemnation because of our sin, our question should be, what must I do to be saved? Think of the rich young ruler when Jesus, or he comes to Jesus and he asks that very question. Teacher, teacher, what must I do to be saved? Common question that we see the gospel writers answer emphatically to put your faith and trust in Jesus. But the question is, what must I do to be saved? And he said to them, verse 12, pick me up and hold me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That in order for the salvation of the sailors, someone has to be sacrificed. See this? Someone has to be sacrificed. Now, the parallels aren't perfect. Because Christ was sacrificed for us, not because of his sin, because of our sin. Jonah was sacrificed for the sailors because of his sin. So the parallels aren't perfect, but I want us to see the picture here. That in order for salvation to come, someone has to be sacrificed. Judgment has to be paid for. And so what happens? Jonah knows this. Jonah gets this. And he, uh, clearly filled with the Holy Spirit as a prophet, is told, hey, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to sacrifice me. But I want us to see also a beautiful picture that he is the one who is, one, laying his life down. He's going, hey, guys, I'm telling you what to do. I'm surrendering myself to you, but you've got to throw me over. In the same way, we see, the, we see religious people and we see part of the, the, the Roman culture. We see all this come together under Pontius Pilate, and they crucified Jesus. However, Jesus would also go on to say, that you don't take my life, but I lay my life down. It's a beautiful picture we're seeing here in Jonah. 
Jonah did not sacrifice himself, but he laid down his life in a way to be sacrificed. Now, once again, Jonah is being sacrificed for his sin. Christ was not sacrificed for his sin. Christ was for ours. But we see the illustration. We see how it's a beautiful, clear illustration in pointing to Jesus. Someone has to be sacrificed. Pick me up and hold me in. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And they lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done what is pleasing to you. Now, another way this illustrates, when I think about Jesus on the cross, when he's being sacrificed for our sins, he says what? Lord, Father, please forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, the innocent party in both stories are praying for forgiveness for the guilty party. See that? Is that they are about to throw Jonah over, and they understand they are innocent, and they're praying for forgiveness in God's favor in the sacrifice. And likewise, Christ on the cross is praying forgiveness even over those that he is dying for. So, verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Scripture makes it very clear that the moment Christ died, that the rage of God's wrath was satisfied. That the rage, the sea represents God's condemnation and God's rage against sin. And as soon as it was sacrificed and appeased for, we see this moment of the sea calming down, meaning God was no longer pouring out his wrath on that sin. And in the same way, at the end of the day on Friday, when Christ cried out and surrendered his spirit unto death unto the Father, we see that the temple uh, began the curtain break in two, recognizing that this appeasement of God and his holiness has been made for, that God's wrath has been appeased for, and it no longer rages. And all of a sudden, we see that God's wrath for judgment of our sin goes calm. Same picture. That Christ, when he died for us, God's wrath was calm. Then the fear of the Lord was exceeding, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows or a covenant unto God. In the same way that because of our sins, someone had to die. And in the same way that Christ laid down his life, he bore the judgment and the wrath for our sin, not his sin. And then once he was sacrificed, God's righteous, holy judgment was appeased for and you and I are invited unto worship of Yahweh. You see how this is a beautiful picture. It all points directly for what Christ has done for us. So the question I have for you is we often see people in moments of, um, everybody's heard the term foxhole prayers. There are no atheists in a foxhole, meaning that it's when you feel like the world's caving in. It's just instinctual. You just cry out to God. Like, you just cry out. Well, it, we see these sailors kind of in a foxhole moment when the storm's coming, storms upon them, and they're crying out. But I want us to notice something. This isn't a foxhole prayer at the end of Jonah. The storm has stopped. The fighting is over with. There's peace and safety, and it's in that moment they worship. It's in the moment where they see God's glory that they worship. This was not just a kind of pressure moment that they 
cried out to God. It was actually when everything, God had already given them what they were wanting. It was a fact that he gave them what they needed. And they recognized that salvation in God, but they then turned and worshiped God. It is only when you and I fully recognize the sacrifice that Christ has made for us, when we recognize that he has given us what we need, then and then only can our hearts actually be stirred in authentic worship to God. And so the question I have for you is taking that backwards. Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ in authentic worship unto God? And if not, it's probably likely because your heart has never actually gazed and recognized and seen in faith what God has done for you by sacrificing his son. But you see today that all of us have worshipped other things than God. Therefore, that's the clearest definition of sin is that anytime we choose to worship anything other than God, He deserves our worship. And so if we've worshipped and pursued anything else and made any other idols in our lives, then we are not worthy to be in right relationship with God. But because of His love for us, He invites us, and He invites us through His Son, Jesus. Have you ever put your faith and trust in Jesus? All I want to say about the fish is Likewise, when Christ was crucified, he was in the tomb for three days before he was resurrected to life. And Jonah, likewise, after he was sacrificed, was in the fish for three days before we see at the the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 that he is spit out unto life. And Jesus, when recognizing this, would make this statement. He says, likewise, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I too will be in the belly of death before I'm resurrected to life. That Jesus is making it clear, hey, the Jonah story, there's a lot of literal that we learn from the Jonah story about Jonah and about the Israelites, about all those things. But Jesus says, this whole story was actually pointing to me the whole time. I wanted y'all to see a picture, specifically the, the Israelite people who knew the Jonah story really well. He said, when you think about the Jonah story, how Jonah, because of God's sin, had to be sacrificed and that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and he was spit out unto life. Likewise, I too will be sacrificed because of sin, except for not my sin, your sin. I too will be sacrificed. I too will go into the belly of death for three days into the grave and then I will be spit back out unto life. Jesus was saying all that happened to point ultimately to God's sovereign work on the cross of Jesus Christ. Can I just say something for those in here? This is one of the stories for me that just really speaks to the authenticity of Scripture. Let me, let me tell you why. This was 700 years before Jesus. I, If I'm writing the Bible by myself, not I because I'm not very creative, but someone who's really creative could probably write a story like this from start to finish. But what are the chances that between two authors, 700 years apart, not just in these two stories, but when you think of all of Scripture, 40 different authors in a span of 1,600 to 2,000 years, 40 different authors, 66 different books making up the Bible, write this perfect, cohesive story where Jesus fulfills all that happened before. I'll look at that and go, one person might be able to make that up, but 40 different people on three different continents in three different languages over 1,600 years, 
and it's this perfectly illustrative and this perfectly aligns with everything, that tells me that there wasn't 40 different authors. There was one, Holy Spirit, who inspired 40 different men to write this. You can't make this up. One of the things that makes Christianity very unique from other religions is the reality that we have one author, uh, one idea of Holy Spirit amongst 40 different people writing the book, and it's cohesive. Other religious books have one human author. We have 40 different human authors, and even more potentially, depending on who you decide to write the books. I'm just trying to give just kind of a simple argument of going, when I read this and I go, I can't help but to see Jesus all in this story. It makes me, it makes me believe what I believe, that God really is sovereignly working in every generation to bring him honor and glory in the person of Jesus Christ. So the question is, 2,000 years later, how is God doing that in your life today? 